Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher, Coach Bobby Julik, and Outskirts visionary, Gus Morton, invite you to put your socks on. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on. I'm Dr. Alan Lim, and I love putting your socks on. I even love putting my own socks on, but put your own socks on first. Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Bobby Julik, and as always, I'm here with Gus Morton. How you doing there, Gus? Mate, as always, I'm doing well. I, uh, I'm really feeling reinvigorated. Uh, one day into my 30th year, and, uh, and things are going really good. So you survived the, the, the birthday party last night? I did. It was a, uh, it was a very low-key night. I knew I had to get on the pod the next day, so I thought I'd better keep it, uh, keep it pretty tame. Nice. So, yeah, I, uh, I had a quiet one, but it was nice. And, uh, and today, a nice day, long stage. I'm going to give you a, uh, before we get into the details of it, let's uh, get a bit of the lay of the land as per usual. The stage today started in Belfort, 230 kilometers, plus, as you highlighted yesterday, a nine-kilometer neutral. Longest stage of the tour, and that, and that wasn't including the neutral. Belfort is, a, is the stage start for the 31st time. Uh, in 2012, Thibaut Pinot won a stage here when he was only 22 years of age, making his uh, debut at the Tour de France. So, you know, a bit of history there for the French. That stage... It started here and it actually went over into to Switzerland. So he didn't actually win the stage in, in that town. Today's stage stays in France, finished in Chalon-Sousson. So I don't even know how to pronounce that. Um, but there you go. That was my attempt. Stage, it's the fifth time the stage is finished here. Uh, the first, Brian Robinson, the first British rider to win a tour stage, won a stage here. Yeah, so there you go. Interesting note. As we watched the live feed today, Chalon sous Seno is the birthplace of Nisfor Nepis, the inventor of photography, uh, who transformed Chalon into the town of the image. So there you go. Uh, as we watch the moving image of the race around the world, we can thank him for bringing us the original invention. Very long, very flat stage, three categorized climbs, a Cat 4 and a Cat 3. Uh, if anyone gets deja vu, this stage finish was the same as Paris-Nice in 2017, albeit 400 metres shorter on that finish there. So, yeah, a little bit of deja vu. And, Bobby, why don't we, uh, why don't we get into it? Actually, before we do, though, let's, uh, let's get the sponsor read out of the way. Yeah, time for today's dose of Road ID Tour Trivia. Today, we're playing for a pair of CD shot cycling shoes. Today's question... How long is the longest recorded stage in Tour de France history? Go to roadid.com slash TDF to answer this question and score a chance to win today's daily prize, as well as one lucky winner will even take home a $10,000 BMC shopping spree. Again, that's roadid.com slash TDF. Recorded stage. Is that a bit of a curveball in that, in that question? <sighs> it's got to be. Well, let's not give away the answers because it is multiple choice, but man, oh man, those guys used to do some big distances back in the day, didn't they? They did used to do some 
ridiculously long Tour de France stages back in the day. Imagine what would happen if they just threw in like a 460k stage, like stage 12 of the Tour this year, just 460k. Well, they better have some road IDs on because there would be people in gutters and sleeping in ditches and it'd be not the best scenario these days, that's for sure. Men were men back in the day. Exactly right. There'd be no Normatec boots mid-stage. I think everyone would lose their shit. Let's talk about the stage today. It was a long one. It was a hot one. There was, a, there was quite a few things going on sort of under the surface there. Why don't you talk us through it? Yeah, before we get into that, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Ciccone backing into the yellow jersey yesterday. I mean, this, is, this kid is, what, 24 years old. He's not only leading the Tour de France, he also has the yellow jersey. He finished second on the stage, KOM in the Giro. I mean, this guy's just crushing it. But... The Tour de France yellow jersey is one of the most elusive things that you can possibly imagine. And it just seemed like yesterday that either his radio wasn't working or he didn't really know the gravity of the situation. And take it from me, I went back and added up the number of days that I was in second place, less than 10 seconds out of the yellow jersey during my career. And it was like, 20 stages that I was sitting in second place, less than 10 seconds behind the yellow jersey, and I never got to touch it. This kid just kind of... No This way. kid just goes to his first tour, doesn't even look like he's that desperate to cross the finish line that it is coming down to just a few seconds, and it did turn out to come down to just that, that bonus second, or those, that eight bonus seconds that he won on the stage. But man, what, what, what a lucky cat. Because I sat there for 20 stages and never touched yellow, and he just backs right into it. So good on him, I guess. I think of all the perspectives in the world, you've got to have the uh, the closest one to that, right? And that's got to be brutal <laughs> seeing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, just to talk a little bit about yesterday, I don't really feel that any of the real GC answers were answered yesterday or the GC questions were answered yesterday. Sure, there were some guys that were a little bit stronger. Some guys judged their effort a little bit better at the end. But, you know, when you're going up that sort of climb, you don't have many options, right? But yes, Philippe and Thomas were much more impressive than we thought they were going to be. But yeah, things may get a little different once we get into those high mountains at the real altitudes that they're going to see in that last week of the tour. But just kind of wanted to touch on that. Giulio Ciccone, congratulations. Man, you made it look so easy getting the yellow, but let me tell you, it is far from it. Oh man, and and I think you're right. The, the dust settling on yesterday, we're really... The status quo still exists, right? And and a brutally hard stage and not much time gaps between the main guys. So it's going to shape up to be a real hell of a third week. Absolutely. So yeah, getting into today's stage, 230K with that nine kilometer neutral, longest stage of the tour. They had a headwind today, so that made it a little bit more difficult. We always knew that this was going to be one of those breakaways and then the sprinters were really going to have their, their feast at the end. And that's exactly what happened. That two-man breakaway of Ofredo and Rosetto went up the road pretty easy. There wasn't too much uh, difficulty to get into that breakaway. I think it just everyone kind of wanted to get this day over. Uh, but yeah, these two guys are evidently close friends, number one. But both of them have come back from some serious crashes and, and injuries. So great to see them up there in, in the breakaways pretty much every day so far. One or the other have been up there. So it's nice that they actually linked up today. I don't know. Is Ofredo trying to, you know, become the new Jens Vogt? He's going in all these breakaways. I mean, he's got to have been off the front in this tour so far, 
you know, what, four or five hundred K? Maybe more? Like I know. He he it, it gives the impression like it's his first tour, right? And it gives the impression of like someone who just has magic legs but has no idea what they've gotten themselves into. And so like, you know what I mean? Because he's just going in the break every day and he's just like, oh, I can just I'm just gonna keep doing this. Uh, but I reckon in that third week he's going to have a uh, a uh, a big crash back down to earth when he realizes that he's he's been off the front for a majority of the race. Yeah, the monkey's got to jump on his back sooner or later. But one thing that I noticed today that kind of I have to mention is you know these guys when they get up up in the front, especially in a move like this, they put their hands up on the front of the handlebars and they're not really holding on to the handlebars. They're trying to be a little bit more aero. Back in the day, whatever happened to the spinachi bars, you know, those little kind of curved round things that we had on the front of our bikes, I think they should bring those back because I would much rather have a guy holding on to something than just his forearms draped over the handlebar, his hands dangling in front where he could hit a, a pothole or a rock or anything and just basically have a yard sale right in front of you. What do you think about that? Did you ever use the old spinachi bars? Bobby, you're speaking my language. No, uh, the spinach, to answer the question directly, no, uh, the, the bars were banned before I was able to, uh, oh. to race. But, man, I speak English and I speak 1990s cycling tech. Bring back the, uh, the spinachi bars. Bring back the spinachy wheels. Let's, uh, let's see some action in the road races, right? And, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, like everyone loves the spinachi bars. I... I Never met a person who who de- who doesn't like them, who didn't like them. Um, I mean, I guess they're a little bit dangerous, but you know, cy- cycling's a dangerous sport. So yeah, I'm I'm all for it. Bring them back. Well, I'm glad that you agree with me because I I love those things. So yeah, once the stage got kicked off, you know, these two really good friends up there, they were they were tr- you know they had a couple mountain mountain uh, prizes today. Uh, two Cat 4s and a Cat 3. They seemed to split them. Alfredo took the first one. Rosetto took the second one. Alfredo took the third one. How nice is that? And then they got to the sprint and, and Rosetto took that. So yeah, they were, they were pretty nice up there sharing the prizes, which we haven't seen so far. It seemed like a lot of the other guys were, were kind of hoovering the points or hogging the, the sprints and so on and so forth. But then we came down to the the bonus seconds for the peloton so they were going for some pretty big points there going for third place but you could just tell those guys were all trying to to save their energy cabrelli rolled across the line with sagan on his wheel i think matthews was up there viviani you know the same yeah. crew but i think everyone was by that time totally focused on on getting up to to the front pretty interesting though there with 30k to go i don't know what happened but all of a sudden there was some pretty big favorites that were caught out either in the caravan or off the back luckily you know it slowed down because there was still 30k to go i don't think anyone was going to drive it for 30k just to put quintana and dan martin in in difficulty but just goes to show you man you cannot ever sleep in the tour de france something's always lingering around the corner and always quite dangerous especially when you're going for gc positions yeah like that was an interesting i think we should stop on that like and, and make a point out of it um, because it really is like today's stage, boring transition stage, you know, should be pretty straightforward, but it just goes to show how much the Tour de France has changed. Um, I was reading a comment from Matt White about, you know, on these stages sort of 10, 15 years ago, you would, it was a day for kind of hijinks and, and for a bit of fun. And he reminisced about a story where he went and bought the Peloton ice cream 
as they were kind of rolling along. And, uh, and he said, there's no time for that nowadays. And, and kind of no sooner as I, had I read that article, I looked up at the television and, uh, and you know, three of the top favourites were all out behind the race. And, uh, and so it just goes to show that, that you really can't sleep for a second in this race. And the intense mental pressure that that puts on these GC guys, like their central nervous systems, their adrenal systems must just be completely cooked by the end of this race. Yeah, and danger lurking around every corner. We saw a couple guys crash. TJ Van Garderen, unfortunately, went down right on his face at the beginning of the race in a, in a non-stressful period. Um, mm. Nicholas Roach, I don't know what abandoned. happened there. Did he abandon? He ended I, up I, abandoning, yeah, yeah, because he rode on. Um, but it was just, yeah, like he crashed, like he was, he went face first. Um, yeah, you I gotta, don't know, like... You, I watched that and rewatched that because they obviously were interested in that on the TV coverage. Did he like hit his front wheel or front brake just too hard and just sent him over the front of the bike? Because very rarely do you see a guy without hitting something stationary. Does he flip over like that? That was yeah. That was intense. I'm sorry to hear that he dropped out of the race. I didn't hear that during the the telecast. But that just did not look good. And again, you're just sitting there tooling around trying to finish the kilometers and, and something like this happens, which can affect the race, can affect the rest of your season, maybe even your career. So, yeah, you're absolutely right about these guys having to be mentally switched on and just burning out their adrenal glands. Man, absolutely. And uh, the sprint, it's sort of become the rigueur du jour, right? Ineos take over with about 10k to go and they essentially run a, a, a you know a sprint train for three kilometers to go and the sprint teams kind of get in behind them and it's interesting to see that like there's a fight but it's kind of now becoming accepted that yeah the gc teams are going to have to they're going to be up there and they're going to basically do the work to keep their guys they're going to get them to that three kilometer to the finish time area uh to get them to the safe zone and then let the sprinting teams take over yeah, I think they they have to do that. That's the way the sport is. And, you know, back in the day, it was, you know, boxing with these guys up until 1K to go. I think the 3K to go rule is actually really, really good. But, you know, there, you always got that one GC guy that or helper that maybe climber guy that wants to go up there and, and contribute to the team effort and be a part of the lead out. And, man, I just advise totally against that. Just let those guys that know what they're doing get up there and, and position their guys where they need to be. You guys stay in that bubble, that 25 to 35 rider back bubble, and just stay there. Don't try to be a hero. Don't try to do anything because sometimes you're biting off more than you can chew, and I know that really upsets the sprinters. And I remember back in the day with Robbie McEwen, I was up there you know, battling for position, and he comes up to me and just very politely goes, it's time for you to get the heck out of here. And I was just like, you know what? You're right. I'm gone. You know, as soon as we crossed that 1K to go, I, w I was in, you know, well out of his way. But the funny thing is these guys, these sprinter guys, when you're coming up and setting up for a, a, a bottom of a climb, sometimes those guys are, are flipping the script and doing annoying you the way that you annoyed them for the sprints. So I thought it was pretty funny. One of these days I went up to Robbie and said the same thing in the exact same monotone. Robbie, it's time for you to get the heck out of here. And he was like, <laughs> yep, you're right. So, yeah, we got to, you know, re respect what these guys are doing. Let those guys do their lead out. That was pretty impressive 
sprint royale today. It, it was, wasn't it? Like the finish was, it wasn't a dangerous finish, but it was very technical and, and positioning was super important. Um, there's an interview with Gronewagen partway through the stage uh, where, well, I mean, sorry, prior to the stage, but they aired it partway through the stage where he said, uh, you've got to be in the top 10 coming around that that left-hander, that kind of almost a hairpin left-hander uh, with two Ks to go. And he was inside that, he was inside that, he was he was fourth or fifth wheel going around there and then and then drifted back as, as the quick step, uh, you know, juggernaut came past it was exci- it was an exciting but, finish you know hindsight's twenty twenty, but you could definitely see that yesterday took a little bit of sap out of a couple of those guys a couple of those sprinters legs right you could mm-hmm. tell that you know grona wagon the the guy that won by just a few millimeters he pulled the pin pretty early yesterday caleb ewan's been looking after himself those guys definitely had that that extra gear compared to a guy like viviani a guy like sagan a guy like michael matthews that may have you know used a few too many matches yesterday to stay in good position but you know no sprint is the same absolutely no sprint is the same but you saw for me the the coolest thing was i saw jesper philipson up there you know to lead out uh his sprinter um i'm sorry i'm the norwegian guy yeah, yeah, uh, um, why am i forgetting Christoph. his name uh christoph and man christoph is a big guy mm. and everyone that kind of came in to take up take his wheel he just gave it up gave it up gave it up so he was moving back instead of moving forward and but if he would have been on the wheel of and had the juice to stay on the wheel, I think that would have been a very, very good lead out because, man, Jesper Flipson, who's I believe is the youngest guy in the tour, just launched that from 300 meters, and I think he wound up still getting fifth on the stage because so you can imagine if Kristoff was on his wheel, what could have happened? We saw the quick-step duo Markov and Ricci delivering uh, Viviano perfectly to uh, to 200 meters to go with, with Sagan on his wheel, but Gronewagen was back probably about eighth wheel and just you know, launched it with Caleb kind of simultaneously on the on on opposing sides of the road. And they were they just like as you said, both had another gear um and completely blew the doors off of the other guys uh to 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 and taking the stage by by millimeters in the end. Caleb was coming at him really quickly. Um so yeah it was an it was an awesome sprint stage. And just remind me, who was your pick to win the stage today? Viviani was my pick. Okay. Um, I thought you picked Corona Wagon for some reason. I was, no. I was really rooting there for for Caleb because I mean these opportunities to to get you know sprint opportunities, sprint stages are getting less and less. There's no doubt about that. Exactly right, and he was close. I, I really thought he was going to get there today. Should we? Uh, we got the super fan waiting. Should we go and uh, have a chat? And he can uh, he can introduce us to our theme today, which is uh, pre tour prep and post stage recovery. Next up, Superfan. Fellas, just being honest here when I say sprint stages don't typically captivate my attention from the couch. I got to say today was a little tough to stay awake until that last 5K. I guess if I had to stare at something for all those kilometers, it could have been worse than Johan Ofredo. Can't imagine having to watch someone like Ilnur Zakarin off the front all day. Yikes. Ofredo looks so good on the bike, though. He's tall, handsome, just oozes class and cool then of course you got dylan gronovagan he looks like a little mini andre greipel dude is so built but handsome 
Sorry, Andre, he's got you beat with those baby blues. Uh, anyway, moving on to recovery talk today. Obviously, we saw Gronovagen crash on stage one and then take a few days to come back to top form. But I want to ask you guys, nowadays, the recovery tech has come so far and there are constantly new products available, like Kinesio tape for injuries and Normatech boots for massage. But when you were young and coming up, what were the secrets or products that were shared with you that were real game changers in, in your recovery. I want to talk old school tech with recovery products. Well, I'll have to take that that one then because I'm a little bit older than newly 30-year-old Gus Morton. So, you know, that that just comes down to the the people that influenced you when you were young. And like I think I've told the listeners before, my dad was a UPS delivery man and he was up in Aspen. That was his route up in Aspen. So he delivered to all the bike shops, all the ski shops, and there's a very European influence up there. So he he picked up a lot of tricks and he used to take me to, to all my, my first bike races. And he was one of the first guys to tell me, hey, Bobby, when you're done with a race, don't just stop. Do a little warm down, spin, spin the legs out a little bit, get your heart rate down, dissipate that lactic acid. And I'm just looking at him like, what, what, what are you talking about? So he actually said, I don't want you coming back over to the car until you do a, a lap or two warm down, if it was a criterium, for example. So yeah, we just used to kind of spin around a little bit, but you know, back then we didn't have all the recovery technology backed by science that we have now for sure but one of the coolest things that he suggested that i do we were in a stage race i believe it was somewhere in utah or yeah my memory is bad on that one but there was we, we were where we were parked was right by a stream and he goes bobby i want you to go down and get in that water and just st stand in the water you know that cold water evidently helps flush out the legs and I was like, well, I'm kind of hot, but I don't have a bathing suit. He's like, no, 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 no. Just dive in there with, with, your, with your cycling shorts on. You know, that, that'll be fine. And I have to say, I kept that with me for a long time. I remember when I did the 1991 Tour de Pont, and I was, I think, 19 years old, and I was doing quite well. I used to go into, and this can only happen in American hotel rooms, because in Europe, finding ice is next to impossible, let alone a whole bathtub full of it. So I would go into my room, I would take the little plastic bag out of the trash can, get the trash can, walk down to the ice machine. It normally would take me two or three trips to get enough ice to fill up the bathtub. And then I would just, you know, cloak myself in a towel and suck it up and just sit in that ice bath. And you know, now guys do that all the time, but it came from my dad actually suggesting that I, I jump in that stream and my legs did feel better. Um, back then you didn't have, uh, um, a soigneur traveling with you. So I would chuck my feet up on the wall. I'd always get into like self massage. I remember doing this as a junior up at the tour of the B2B. We stayed in these like, um, high school classrooms on these cots. And as soon as the race was over, I was back at back in our little room. I'd put my feet up on the wall and I'd start giving my, you know, legs a massage with some sort of, you know, body lotion. And I felt that that really helped and my teammates, they would come walk into the room, basically throw on their polo shirts, their OP shorts, their polo cologne and then just walk out, you know, to go pick up chicks, but I stayed there and and looked after my recovery a little bit. 
The legs up on the wall is a good one. I uh, I still do that. And also, too, the feeling that, like, using the hotel um, ice machine to fill up the ice bath, I remember doing that at a lot of races, um, particularly in the US, like Turicali and that, because you could just go down and fill the bath. Uh, often we would run the run the machine out of ice. So, yeah, before ahead of the time, ahead of the game, Bobby. Yeah, so that, w- that was pretty much the old school techniques, but um, nowadays there's just so many. It can almost make your head spin. Bobby, when you got to Europe, talk about maybe some of your early experiences, any soigneurs that, that shared secrets with you or, or uh, you know, stuck with you? Well, when I first got to Europe, I was with Motorola and, you know, we were, I was B team or probably C team, maybe B team. And, you know, you weren't totally looked after. We didn't have all those assets that the riders have now. We didn't have the buses and, you know, all this extra staff traveling with us around the races. But when I went to, to Kofidis, I was blown away when we got back from the ride and guys were putting that syrup in like a liter of water and syrup, right? And I was like, like what syrup? I don't get that. They're, uh, like, t- you know, flavored syrup, like okay. a grenadine, yeah, right? Okay, yep. And I'm sitting there with all my stuff from Champion Nutrition. That was Cytomax back in the day. You know, I've got, you know, this for right after the race, this for, for a little bit further, this right before dinner. So I had all these, like, little powders and potions and stuff. And these guys were sitting down there sucking down basically glucose syrup. And it it just really was a surprise to me. And then on the, on the buffet, it would be like yogurt and maybe like an apple tart. I'm like, man, these guys don't know anything about recovery. And I didn't really either, but I started to kind of come up with these, what worked for me. And what worked for me was having those drinks, my drinks in, in the bottle. And I'll tell you exactly my recovery technique the year I was podium in the Tour de France in 1998. So I had these energy gels or, yeah, just gels, and they were from a company called Squeezy. I don't even know if Squeezy is around (laughs) anymore. But I would have one of these, and I would take them, once we got to the 50K to go, you know, in the first week of the tour, you're just doing flat stages the whole time. So I'd take one at 50, one at 40, one at 30, one at 10, and then when I crossed the finish line, I would take the other one. And then slam like a an Aquarius. That was like my favorite drink or some, you know, Gatorade type drink. Then I would go back to the bus. I would, you know, change my clothes and I'd have like a little sachet of like amino acids. And then a little bit after that, then I'd have a baked potato, uh, a boiled potato that our soigneurs prepared for us. That was very European Oof. with some olive oil and salt. And that that was... <laughs> pretty much it i wasn't sitting there hoovering down a bunch of cookies and chips and crap like that but you know fast forward to what i think of now and you know having that glucose right after the race is actually they were on to something it just they deliver they put it in a delivery mechanism that just didn't make sense to me but now I, I suggest that guys, as soon as they're done with the, the race, they, they, they hydrate. But then as, before they take off their helmet, before they take off their sunglasses, that they're consuming between 60 and 80 grams of glucose. What's the easiest way to consume that and the most fun is Haribo candy. You know, the, everyone loves little gummies, right? You can also take maple syrup. You could have glucose syrup, but that's like really tricky to transport because it's, it's very sticky and, you know, 
kind of gets everywhere. But who in the world doesn't love Haribo's, right? But you have to let that pass through your stomach before you start chucking on a bunch of other stuff. And then 10 to 15 minutes after that, then I would have that post-recovery shake, which people refer to as the protein shake, but really it's like a four-to-one carbohydrate to, to protein mixture. And then that kind of takes off that initial, gosh, I'm starving. I'm just going to eat the first thing that I see. And then, then yeah, about 20 minutes, 30 minutes after that, then we would have that post-recovery meal, which, you know, nowadays the, the Swaniers have rice cookers in the bus. They've got all sorts of options, chicken, you got all the sauces and, you know, then you're having that post-race recovery meal. So I really feel that, that it has gotten better, but when you look back in history, they were trying to do the same things, but maybe not in such a set protocol as it is now. That's a really interesting point you make there. Um, I think like, and, and Alan Lim, who we get, we've got on the show later on, often talks about this. I'm Dr. Alan Lim, and I love Put Your Socks On. Back in the day, we did a lot of things that were correct. We just didn't know why they were correct. And, and now science is, is kind of catching up with, with a lot of that um, thinking and, and practice from back in the day. Should we uh, move on? Like with that, that kind of leads us perfectly into kind of talking on prep and recovery and... Um, in a more broad sense, and, and there was something that was said yesterday, Bobby, by Teo um, about the first week of, of the Giro, and we sort of touched on this in the pre-show, um, you and I, but I find it really interesting, and what it is is that uh, he was sort of saying you can put, like he felt like he detrained in that first week of the Giro. How do you prepare for a Tour de France where, or for example, the Giro, where the first stages are, are all flat and you want to be good at climbing? Well, that kind of boils down to, you know, being in a grand tour. You can't always assume that a flat stage is going to be an easy stage. In the Giro this year, yeah, Teo said that he felt like it was super, super easy. But you can't really bank on that happening because anything could transpire. So, yeah, these guys coming into a grand tour, a lot of the times they're preparing at altitude. They come down. They do a little bit of intensity training down at sea level to make sure that they get the power back in their legs. But then you got to think of tapering down. And tapering means reducing the number of hours on the bike, the duration of the bike. But you still need to touch a little bit on the intensity to keep that system kind of open, to do some, some power work. But you're just doing less of it. So by tapering, what you're trying to do is the most important thing is that you want to be mentally fresh because coming down out of some of those training camps, you're, you're just fried because you've been living on top of a mountain, living like a monk, not talking to anybody outside of your team. And you just got to kind of relax because you're going to be traveling for the next month in, in a, in a fishbowl, right? So tapering definitely allows you to recover mentally a little bit. But it also will increase the blood volume, the red blood cell volume. It improves muscle strength, resistance to fatigue, so on and, and so forth. But you do have to keep a little bit of that intensity thrown in there because a lot of ways that we measure um, form, freshness, readiness, however you want to, to call it, is through the data that we get downloaded by these athletes and we plug it into our evaluation softwares there's many many ones out there and they all quite similar but you know that just gives you an idea of the stress that that person is putting 
into his body when he's on his bike, when he's recording, when he has that recording device switched on. But that doesn't tell you what he does afterwards. Did he recover correctly? Did he have to go, you know, take his kids to an amusement park? Did he have to go out and mow his lawn? You know, these are all things that don't really factor into the training stress score, which is how a lot of these um, evaluation software uh, platforms determine your, your freshness or your readiness or your fatigue or your form. So a lot of it is, is just, you got to bank on these guys do, you know, they they have to listen to their sensations and they, and that's super important. You know, you can map out this perfect structure as far as the data that you see and lowering the TSS, increasing the freshness. But you know, what does that mean if you're not looking at the whole picture? And there, there's a lot of, you know, technology out there that can, can help this, this, this question that is always a, a toss up. There's no real 100% way of doing it, but the riders at this level, they need to feel it more than a coach telling them exactly how they feel. And is that, um, that's an interesting thing. Like you often see a rider, for example, who goes out and gets a big result, um, at the Tour de France, whatever race, their goal of the season. And then they turn up to that race again the next year. They're targeting it. They seem to be on good form. And then they they come apart at the start of the race. And and they're sort of like, well, I did the same, I did the same lead up as last year. You know, we kept all the preparation the same. Is that is that an example like that you just you just don't really know? There's you can use as many tools as you want, but in the end there is this human element that that is quite unquantifiable. Absolutely. I mean, I always have that mantra, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. But in this sport, there are so many variables that that, that's a slippery slope trying to repeat every single thing that you did the year before and assume that you're going to have the same outcome. Interesting. What products are you, you know, there's a lot of stuff nowadays, Normatec, ice vests, we've talked about a little bit like uh, compression socks, kinesiology tape. What are you? What do you? What are your favorite? Like, what's your favorite technology surrounding recovery and uh, and and athlete kind of well being? For me, the most important is just the recovery protocol after the race, making sure that you restore those glycogen stores as quick as possible. Um, you know, I was a big fan of massage, but I've ran into people that say there's really no science backing up that massage actually works, and I think. When, when you talk about compression tights, uh, compression socks, I thought they were a load of crap. And then I actually used them and I was like, wow, these make my legs feel better. Uh, Normatec, I was a total non-believer in that until I tried it. So a lot of these things, I think you need to try. And each rider, each individual has to determine what works for him. But the most important thing is that you don't overdo all these things because I've seen in the past where after the race, you're just so stressed, you know, you've been stressed the whole entire day. You know, your sympathetic system has been turned on. You need to turn on that parasympathetic system and just relax and recover. But if you're going to the cryotherapy and then to the massage and then to the chiropractor and then to the ice bath, you know, I, I think that some of them kind of negate each other. But the most important thing for me is that recovery protocol after the race and then just getting into your bed and relaxing. And there's something to be said for that. I, like, I've read 
um, going back to talking about massage, you know, I think massage is one of the foundations of professional cycling. It's one of the core parts of it, right? And um, and I was I've read stuff about how there's no kind of physiological evidence that it that it helps performance. But for me, it was always that time. It was like meditation. It was like that ability to just like lie on the bed and like you know have no disruption and be able to just like have calm have calm for for an hour because the rest of your day is crazy you're in the bunch it's just full on you you know you're in the bus it's you know you're trying to get from here to there or whatever so there's a lot to be said for both the physiological and also psychological elements of of recovery before we move on to uh we've got alan lim uh lined up for an interview i'm dr alan lim and i love put your socks on but i just want to ask you one last question and you kind of you, you told us your uh recovery protocol for the Tour de France in 97 and it was remarkably uh like contemporary so I was going to say like what's the strangest tech recovery technique you've tried but it seems like you've been kind of the OG of recovery techniques for like the last 20 years so what um what's the strangest recovery technique you've seen unless you've tried something pretty wacky oh boy uh you know I've seen pretty much everything you know, go stand on your head in the corner and that will raise your hematocrit two points. <laughs> I, I, you know, that's, that's about as crazy as it gets. No. Um, is that real? Wait, is that real? I'd have, no, okay, I'm just good, kidding. Good, good, Sorry. I'm just I mean, kidding. You, but, you but sometimes, you sometimes know. you think that's where it gets to, right? Totally, like there's just absolutely. so many things. Um, I'd say I've never tried this as, as a professional cause the, it wasn't out there that this technology wasn't out there, but the whole cryotherapy for endurance athletes. That sounds a little bit crazy to me. I, I went, I, I've seen them. Uh, I think there was a team one year that actually had one of these chambers following them around, like in, a, you know, being towed behind one of the, the trucks. But yeah, that's the one that I'd really have to look into that mm. I look at as being a little bit bizarro for endurance athletes. Yeah, I've read some interesting interesting articles on on cryo and i've seen at least in the last five years or so i've followed it's kind of risen up and it was like yeah this amazing uh amazing product for anti-inflammation and all this sort of stuff and then now the same people are kind of saying well maybe that's not exactly what you want and maybe that effect is actually blunting or or, or detrimenting your training adaptation interesting so we have alan lim uh who's here al how you doing i'm doing good can you guys hear me okay we can welcome to the show before we get started i just i just want to uh tell the the listeners alan lim is a world-renowned sports physiologist and the founder of sports nutrition company scratch labs uh he is currently in boulder uh but heralds from la and then before that china i guess how you doing man I'm doing really well. How are you doing? You look good. I love your smile. Yeah. Yeah. How is it? Yeah. Yeah. You noticed the tooth? For the listeners out there, right before uh, we started the Tour de France podcast, I was out mountain biking and uh, smashed my face and lost a tooth. And it's going on two weeks now and I, st- I still haven't had a chance to replace it. So, yeah. So, well, I'm talking to these guys with a missing tooth. Ow. <laughs> We're talking today um, kind of like, the, like the, the pre-tour taper and then the daily recovery protocol. And I thought it would be 
worthwhile hearing from you because I know that you were with TJ Van Garderen and Mike Woods and a few other uh, guys up in the mountains immediately pre-tour. I was kind of interested to hear like what what was there, what was that camp looking like, and then how was that run down into the tour and to the start of the race? What did that kind of look like for those guys? Yeah, you know, I mean, setting up for the tour is a bit complicated because you're trying to balance both race load with training load and there's still this argument about whether or not you go in with really specific training load and kind of not worry about the racing or if the racing is important, et cetera, all that sort of stuff. And everyone's got different strategies. In the case of Woods and TJ, they both did the Dauphiné and that was good training load. Um, and then they needed to recover from it. Right. Um, some athletes, you know, like Dan Martin, he took the approach of, he did the Dauphiné and then he went straight into a high altitude recon mountain camp, right. In the Alps. And so you've got different approaches. You can say like, Hey, I'm going to, uh, add on training load to the, to the race load and, you know, try to make a kind of a longer event out of it. Or you can do what these guys did, which was basically rest a little bit after the Dauphiné and then start training again and when they started training again uh we did that training up at andorra uh we were at uh, a pretty high elevation up in soldu but i don't think that the altitude really had much of an effect it was really about just getting into that cool crisp mountain air um being relaxed and being in the terrain uh you know that 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 these guys are going to face in the tour and challenging them with a, a ton of climbing so we essentially started out with you know two just moderate days, just a lot of volume of climbing. There's no other choice in Andorra. Took a rest days, and then we did a three-day block um, pretty hard each day progressively, you know, more intense, uh, more specificity. Uh, we added, uh, you know, an e-bike to the to the training mix instead of using a scooter to motor pace the guys. Uh, we used uh, uh, e-bike, and the idea there was that it's a lot easier to feather. It's a lot easier to control. You get all the same benefits of, you know, uh, motor pacing, except, you know, you don't, you don't screw these guys or, or surge too hard on them, especially when you're in the mountains. So, whereas, uh, a scooter is really good for motor pacing on, on flat and rolly terrain. It doesn't really work, work well in the mountains and in the mountains, these teams are so strong now, like Ineos, uh, is so strong that effectively, you know, the draft still matters and that speed still matters. And, you know, being able to adapt to getting yourself drugged, you know, up and down these mountains is still still really key in terms of specificity um after andorra took another day off came back down to girona uh did some two days of super high intensity lower volume with uh team time trial training which was again super specific uh then another day off and then we finished it off with just you know one long day and then one super hard test day and so what was even happening kind of in this block was that we're shortening the days to like you know two or three day training blocks at most making sure that there's ample recovery in between we're kind of feathering it a bit and then the taper really starts uh the tuesday before the saturday start and it was just all about staying relaxed all about you know being chill not worrying about it uh, doing a little bit of team time trial practice to get some of that high intensity and power and speed. But outside of that, the volume is significant, really, uh, significantly reduced. Um, a lot of that is just that the week coming into the tour is so stressful anyways. You've got to do all this media stuff. You've got to do presentation. You've got to do medical checks. Um, you've got to travel. So even though people think of it as a rest week in terms of you know, offloading volume, it's still a pretty stressful week. And then the tour and you cross your fingers. 
yeah how do you do like how do these guys do you have any kind of ways um or like techniques to kind of get these guys to relax in that week leading up to the tour like keeping their minds off it because it does sound like you're in a pressure cooker for a long period of time yeah it's hard you know i mean i always employ this technique that uh Lori Ventura uses for her five kids. It's called the HALT technique. Uh, it stands for hungry, angry, lonely, tired. You know, and you just pay attention like, hey, dude, why are you being such a little ass right now? Are you hungry? <laughs> are you angry about something? Can we talk it out? Are you lonely? Do you need a hug? Are you tired? Can we just tuck you in the bed and read you a little book? I mean, it gets it, it, it gets to the point where you're literally like regressing, right, to uh, taking care of, you know, a very delicate child, if you will, but it's just, you know, common sense and being human. Uh, sometimes it requires a slap in the face. Sometimes it requires a pat in the back. And moving on to, uh, like to the racing itself and, and, you know, yesterday's mountain stage was the first real test and an absolutely brutal day, right? Yeah. Recovery post stage, like Bobby outlined earlier on the show, which you wouldn't have heard, but he outlined his kind of recovery protocol and it was really minute to minute specific um and I kind of wanted to like expand on that a little bit which I didn't get the chance to ask Bobby but like how important is timing post stage for any form of the of the recovery be it food or be it massage normatech I don't know what is that what's that protocol looking like and and what's the timing like yeah, the, the timing is everything. You got to have a schedule. You got to have a system. It's got to be repeatable every single day because it's not just something that the riders execute. It's something that the staff executes, right? And so this is a, a whole team dynamic and everything is so highly orchestrated, right? So there's not a lot of room to be kind of spontaneous and decide that you're going to try a different technique on one day versus the other. But, it, you know, I would say that depending upon who you are as a rider and depending upon the stage, it even begins when you're still on the bicycle, right? Like if, if you know that you need some, some rest and you're going to have a hard day the next day, let's say you're a domestic, you know, you're probably going to ride the Gruppetto in. And at that time, you're going to start to, you know, consume a lot of simple sugars and a lot of food and just start the recovery process. Then uh, professional cyclists are unique because they're the only athletes who are so conditioned that they can actually restore glycogen while they're still exercising. Right. And so I always tell guys like, look, if, if you're already in the Gruppetto, you got to start the recovery process then, or some days you might actually decide that if it's a flat stage and you're coming in the last hour, you're going to start to, you know, chow on a bunch of food. And at least that food you intake goes specifically to the, to the working muscles. Then it's getting back on the bus. And I think that one of the things that's most overlooked is changing the temperature, right? Like you're so hot after these stages, even if it's cool. So taking a, a shower on the team bus, um, most of these guys will just take a cold shower because they're so hot and that reduces their body temperature. If you, uh, if you're not able to reduce body temperature, then you always stay in this catabolic state where you're breaking yourself down. You can't transfer into this, you know, anabolic or rebuilding phase. So cool shower hydration is obviously important. So you got to get, you know, uh, an ample amount of fluid, uh, potentially salty, sweet fluid in. So you'll see guys drink a lot of Cokes, a lot of sodas at this point, a 10% sugar solution is fine. It, you know, the simple sugars for these guys are fine because it causes a big insulin spike, which is anabolic. And, you know, it helps to push all that sugar right back in a muscle where it's used as glycogen. Uh, that being said, the guys also do take on a protein drink um, on the bus, and then they'll get most of their carbohydrates through 
uh, food, a simple meal. It could be as simple as just like a big plate of white rice and an omelet, bunch of eggs, and then, you know, they'll flavor it with whatever they want. You know, there's usually a big flavor box in the team bus and these guys can put sriracha, brags, whatever they want to, to make it taste their liking. Uh, you know, then there's a transfer. You never know how long that's going to be. And so, you know, the guys are, you know, usually like in their Normatex at that point, they're doing compression. They each have their own like captain's chairs. They're pretty relaxed. They're chilling out. They're listening to music. There's so little time between the end of a stage and the next day. So then you got your massage, you got your physio, you got your Cairo. Uh, but most importantly, you've got uh, another, you know, meal team dinner hopefully it's not too late and then you've got sleep and sleep is 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 ultimately everything right and if you can get a great night's sleep uh then then hopefully you're good to go or at least you've done everything that you could and probably the most difficult thing about sleeping during the tour is that you're in inconsistent accommodations and a lot of those accommodations don't have air conditioning and if it's hot while you're trying to go to bed oh my god that's um that's a that's a bad situation. Interesting. So there's a lot that goes into it and there's a lot that's out of everyone's control, um, which I don't think, yeah, I mean, like like a lot of, I think, listeners will will have heard um, that, you know, people complain about hotels or that there's no uh, air con and that sort of stuff, but you don't really take into account the stress of a transfer, you know, all of the, just the little things you have to do. Hey, Alan. Yeah, I have one question. I There's, you know, the new fad with that bicarb gel from numerous companies produce it. I was just wondering with your experience, you know, does this work? Is it backed by science? Have you tried this with your athletes? And if so, do they like it? I would say that the science isn't vetted yet. Um, you know, the proposition is that you've got something that can open up a pore big enough to get bicarb through. And certainly you can get things across uh, the skin. You, you know, there are a lot of applications for transdermal medications. Uh, whether or not you can get enough that you can actually change acid base, um, especially if you're looking at the gram amount, that's probably negligible. And so you're maybe banking on some other effect potentially with recovery with uh, that small amount of bicarb going in. Um, that being said, you know, science isn't vetted yet. Um, it, it takes a lot of work, a lot of time to get the science right. Um, my experience with the athletes I've worked with is, 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 is hit or miss, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, when it comes to performance, you've got to consider yourself an N of one. And if it works for you, then great. If it doesn't work for you, then no worries. And so what I tend to encourage people to do is try it for yourself because, you know, the problem with a lot of sports science research is that things end up being about an average and averages don't really matter when you're trying to change or affect an individual performance. And so everybody has to be their own, um, you know, scientific experiment, if you will. Um, I can definitely say that until the science is, is there for me that I uh, remain skeptical and it anecdotally, there's not enough there that breaks through what I call the noise. And the noise is that there are so many potential factors that might be affecting somebody's performance and athletes are throwing the kitchen sink at that kind of performance equation. So there's a lot of noise there. You're never really sure if one thing is, is better than another thing or actually causing the effect. And so when things do work and things are able to break through the noise, then you know you've got something. Um, but this is for me still part of the static, you know, and, and that might be different for, for other people. It may 
you know, actually really, really be the critical thing for someone. So you got to just try it yourself. I agree. I agree. So I answered earlier in the show what my strangest recovery technique that I used or even heard of was all about. And I'd be interested because you, you have such a massive experience and have worked with so many top athletes. What is the craziest thing that you've come across? Well, I think maybe the craziest thing, um, the, 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 the coolest thing that I've ever come across, and, and it was kind of crazy because it was a little bizarre, but we um, were dealing with this issue of, of hot hotel rooms, right? And how do you get someone to fall asleep in a hot hotel room? And one thing that is known uh, in the sleep physiology world is that you can't fall asleep unless you're able to shunt heat from your core out to the periphery. And so part of the falling asleep process is to be able to let go of heat or your body lets go of heat as you're falling asleep. And so if you can't let go of that heat, you're basically screwed. It's really difficult to fall asleep. And so we had borrowed this equipment from a company called Cincinnati Sub-Zero, and they make equipment that thermoregulates people when they're in the operating room. It's used by anesthesiologists. It says <laughs> what happens when you're, uh, when you're under anesthesia is that your body loses its ability to thermoregulate. And so they have these like heating pads that they can change the temperature of and these head wraps uh, connected to these refrigerated units that can change temperature and it flows water across, you know, this, you know, kind of membrane uh, so that you can control body temp. And the first time we used it, we used this head wrap. It was like the 2008 Tour de France. Um, I put it on David Miller, and he was on the massage table, and I just was just wanted to check it out. And I put this thing on his head. I turned it on, and as soon as we turned it on, like he instantly fell asleep. It was like turning a, it was like turning a machine off. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And we did this with basically every single rider. And every time we did this with a rider, they just fall asleep. And so wow. for me, especially Amazing. looking at how, how, how high their body temperatures are after a long day, especially if it's a hot day, being able to like suddenly reduce body temp uh, in a way that isn't uh, intrusive, like going in a, in a, in a, in a cool tub or taking a shower or, you know, whatnot. Uh, if you can cool body temp in a way that's not intrusive and you can get athletes to turn off and sleep, that's an incredible recovery tool. Um, yeah, that's probably the, the coolest, weirdest, most interesting thing. These units though are freaking expensive and we borrowed the unit and <laughs> the team wasn't willing to invest in, in buying them. Plus they're big and blah, 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 blah. So it's not always pragmatic, right? Yeah, dude, that is epic. Yeah, it, it was a, a drop in the knowledge. <laughs> yeah, but sleep, 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 sleep. We once for Lance, we built an air conditioning system. It was basically a whole lattice structure of bowls stacked on top of each other with ice in each of the bowls with a fan blowing across the ice. So that was uh, <laughs> that was our erector set cooling technique. Nice. <laughs> got to do what you got to do. Al, thank you so much. Uh, always a pleasure Thank talking. you, Alan. I love what you guys are doing with Put Your Socks On. Uh, great job. Keep it up. Cheers, man. Thank you so much. Take care. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Alan Lim, an absolute legend of the sport. And uh, some really interesting stuff there. Some stuff that I'd never heard of. That, uh, the cooling system. I wish I had had that. That's... I mean, not that it would have done me any good, but I just want a good night's sleep every now and then, you know. 
And, you know, David Miller is one of those guys that's constantly pinging. To get him to basically fall asleep instantly, I wish I would have had one of those when my kids were were younger, right? Just get him, <laughs> go to sleep. Here, put this thing on your head. Uh, over. <laughs> it would have been great. Exactly. You just need the insider knowledge. Should we uh, touch really quickly uh, on tomorrow's stage before we wrap the show up? Sure, sure. Yeah, tomorrow. Stage eight from Macon to saint Antienne, 199 kilometers with a 7.3 neutral start. You know, saint Antienne is a tricky place to finish. I mean, any race that you go into, when, it's, when you see saint Antienne as the finish line, you know, you, you, you got to be ready because it's, it's a really unique area, a really unique part of France. So you know there's going to be some stuff that, that just kind of pops up. A very lumpy stage. They're up and down all day long. When you add it up, there's like 3,700 uh, 3, meters of climbing. So it's it's going to take a toll on these guys, especially after the long stage today. So the 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 key for this is that you just need. It's going to sting the legs, regardless if if they go fast, mm. if they go slow. With those sort of altitude meters, it's going to sting the legs. But conserving energy is so key for those GC contenders. And especially the sprinters, because yes, this is that perfect opportunity for a breakaway. But at the same time, like with all these sprinting sprinter teams, you know, motivated and with something to, to to win, it could that it could come down to a sprint. I'm not saying for sure it's going to be, but um, it's a pretty straight line into into town. You know, for it being in Saint Etienne. And you got an 800 meter finishing stretch that you won't be able to see the finish until 350 meters. So yeah, it'll be interesting. You know, a breakaway could go to the line. I'm going to go and say that it's going to come down to a sprint. And who's the strongest, most resilient to fatigue sprinter out there? Peter Sagan. He's my pick for tomorrow. I think that's a good pick. And, and it's interesting, you said 3,700 meters of climbing. Uh, yesterday's stage, stage six was only 4,000 meters. So you know, like it's it's interesting how you can accumulate a lot of uh, of of elevation gain without going over any major mountains. Good pick there with Sagan. I'm going to go with uh, Matteo Trenton. Uh, he's sort of been sniffing around. I think this could be a sprint finish for him. Nice. Well, that's the show, Bobby. We've run out of time again. An absolute pleasure to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. We just keep getting better and better. I'm not going to lie. So you guys uh, keep spreading the word. Keep providing us the uh, the love that is fueling us. Um, Velonews.com, uh, Velonews Voices on Twitter. Get us on iTunes, SoundCloud. You can listen to the pod. Bobby, thank you so much. Thank you, Gus, and thanks. Uh, special thanks to Alan Lim for for being on today. And as always, guys, gals, don't forget to put your socks on. I'm Dr. Alan Lim, and I love put your socks on. I even love putting my own socks on. But put your own socks on first. For a very limited time, if you use coupon code TDF at RoadID.com, you'll score $5 off on that one piece of gear that no cyclist should ever ride without again. And in case you were wondering, Road IDs range in price from a mere $20 to $35. So not only are they inexpensive, they look great, they last forever, and they just might save your life. So stop procrastinating. Go out and get one of these today. Thank you.